0: section three of wellington by george hooper this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter two wellesley's early indian service part two it was not until three weeks later that the mysorian encountered his other and more redoubtable foe his army was weaker by several hundreds and discouraged by defeat but he was in his own country, had a fine body of horsemen, and still preserved a central position between the column from Bombay on the west and the host pressing on from the eastward. His opportunities, had he known how to use them, were considerable, for General Harris had to move through a country of rock, jungle, and forest, and guard a convoy which covered a vast area. The army, Wellesley's force being on the left, marched in two columns enclosing the huge mass of guns animals and carts there were a battering train of fifty pieces a moving arsenal another fifty cannon and altogether above a hundred thousand bullocks besides all these writes the colonel the number of elephants camels bullocks carts coolies and plunderers belonging to individuals in the army particularly in that of the nizam was beyond calculation, yet at least double the number in the employment of the public. In short, when on the march, there was a multitude in motion which covered about 18 square miles. The consequence was that when they entered the Mysore country, the draft cattle began to die for want of food. However, on inquiry, says Colonel Wellesley, it was found that the root of the evil lay in a parcel of absurd impracticable shopkeeping regulations which had been made for the bullock department under which no great undertaking could prosper, and the first step, when the army got near Bangalore, was to abolish them all. Then the useless lumber, which Wellesley had pressed the general to leave at Valor, was destroyed, and nothing survived but the useful equipment. He was, however, of opinion that if Tipu had had sense and spirit sufficient to use his cavalry and infantry as he might have done, the army would have been kept much longer in the jungles of Bangalore. As it was, his light horse, the best of their kind in the world, kept the enemy in sight and even destroyed as much forage as they could. Nevertheless, the army covered ten or twelve miles a day, and sometimes more, and suffered no loss of importance during the whole march. The frontier places, mostly fortified hills which rose in isolated blocks, sheer from the plain, were easily captured or surrendered, and the army bending westward made for the quarter where Tipu gathered up his flustered troops. They were found near Malavelli on the right bank of the Madur an affluent of the Coveti. General Harris did not intend to attack when he came in sight of the enemy on March 27th. He was about to encamp for the day, but as the advance guard and even the lines selected were under fire, and as the Maizoru cavalry showed a disposition to charge, the general supported his front, and an impromptu combat ensued. Wellesley, the thirty third leading, moved in echelon against the right flank of Tipu's array, and as the operation seemed to open a gap in the centre, Tipu tried to break through but in the rear stood three regiments of horsemen under General Floyd, who dashed at once into the offensive column, routing and driving it from the field. Wellesley's vigorous onset, combined with Floyd's charge, really decided the action. On the other flank, a small body of the enemy's horse rode at the European brigade, some of them piercing the line, but most of them falling before it. The combat was over in a couple of hours, neither Tipu's infantry nor cavalry being able to stand for a longer period, itself a sufficient testimony to the unhesitating dash of the British brigades. In fact, Malavelli gave them the moral ascendancy which they steadily maintained. They lost a few score and killed and wounded, the Mysoreans, perhaps two thousand. It was Wellesley's first Indian battle. Want of water compelled General Harris to fall back on Malavelli, where there were tanks, and here he halted for a day. Tipu, hovering in the vicinity, expected that his opponent would move straight on the capital by the left bank of the Coveri. He was soon disappointed, for rightly judging that Tipu was unprepared on the other bank, General Harris, on the 29th, deftly and secretly marched upon Saucili where the next day the whole army crossed the river by an easy ford. He thus put the river between him and Tipu, approached General Stuart and the small columns operating on his own left, gained access to a country not yet ravaged, and was able to march upon the least defensible side of Seringapatam, the point where he was not expected. Five short marches brought him unopposed, To the southern side of the fortress into which Tipu had retired after his defeat. On April 6th, General Floyd was sent with a strong detachment of all arms to meet General Stuart. But before he started the siege, operations began. Seringapatam stands or stood on an island formed by the Coveri and filled up the westerly end with fortified forts on both branches along the river banks and, of course, on those facing south and east. The palace and mosque towered above the walls and pleasure grounds, interspersed with ruined buildings and cut off by a line of entrenchments, occupied the larger half of the island. Coming up from the southward, General Harris pitched his camp facing east, behind an aqueduct which was carried in a southerly direction. His rear, protected by rough ground, and his left resting on the covery above the town, the space between the aqueduct and the fortress was occupied by the enemy, whose rockets annoyed the camp. And on the day of his arrival, he determined to dislodge them by a night attack. Here we come upon what has been made so much of as Colonel Wellesley's repulse. Two columns were sent against the line of Tippoo's forposts. The left under Colonel Shaw succeeded. The right, under Wellesley, failed. The aqueduct meandered in the form of the letter S. In the upper limb was a tope or grove, in the lower the village of Sultanpita. The thirty-third got into confusion in the gloom, and Wellesley's attack was frustrated. His explanation is that the night was dark, that the enemy was strongly posted, and that he could not find out the post which he was to occupy but he attacked it at daylight on the sixth, he writes, and carried it with ease and little loss. He resolved thenceforth, and his reason explains the failure, that of his own will he would never suffer an attack to be made by night upon an enemy who is prepared and strongly posted, and whose posts have not been reconnoitred by daylight. Evidently that had not been done, and the hurried enterprise was an exemplification of more haste, less speed. General Harris visited the spot two days afterwards, found it not so favorable for keeping hold of as Colonel Shaw's position higher up. He also states that on the 4th, General Baird, having gone out by night against the enemy's horse and cut them up, missed his road coming back, although one would have thought it impossible, for it was starlight. No wonder night attacks so often fail. In the abortive skirmish, Wellesley was hit in the knee, a slight touch from which I have felt no inconvenience, and, according to General Harris, he was in a good deal of agitation when he reported his ill success at midnight. Plainly, he was much vexed, but the story put about years afterwards that General Baird's friendly intervention alone gave him an opportunity of retrieving his failure is not credible. In fact, the reflection of General Harris on the night attacks, altogether circumstances considered, we got off very well, is not the language of an angry commander-in-chief. When the Bombay army entered the camp on April 14th, the besiegers were solidly established on a strong line stretching from the bank of the Coveti below to the bank above the town. And as it had been determined to attack the northwestern angle, because it could be battered by converging lines, Stuart's troops were sent over the river. This served the double purpose of taking ground beyond the Coveri, whence a flank fire from the north could be brought to bear on the weak angle of the fortress and of misleading Tipu. He had not, like his father, a soldier's eye, nor, like his father, that steadfast courage which glows more brightly as perils increase. His resolve to fight was unshaken, but he fought in the spirit of a doomed man, yet without displaying any of that bright invention which is sometimes the fruit of despair he seems to have known instinctively that his annihilation as a sovereign had been decreed as it had and to have run half-way to meet his fate he had made up his mind to die fighting but while Sultan he would also gratify his vengeance he had some european prisoners of war and he murdered them by torture hammering nails into their skulls he had nothing left but his gloomy valour and his cruelty. The besiegers worked steadily on, advancing their posts, building their batteries, and pounding the protruding angle from both sides. The Mysoreans dashing out upon the Bombay troops, who seemed the best mark, were firmly met and retired with a loss of many hundred men. No other sortie was attempted, and on May 2nd, two heavy batteries opening at short range on the curtain south of the bastion at the angle made a practicable breach in a couple of days. Enterprising officers explored the river bed and some crept up to the foot of the defences. They found the water in the hard bed of the river not much more than a foot deep, and the obstacles on the inner side easily surmountable. Therefore it was resolved to storm the place a little afternoon on the 5th, when the native who is alert at night and dawn is apt to seek repose. But lest his suspicions should be aroused by any obvious movement, four thousand three hundred troops, more than one-half Europeans, were packed into the trenches early in the morning. General Baird, who had been a prisoner in Seringapatam when Haider ruled there, commanded the whole. He gave one column to Colonel Sherbrooke, another to Colonel Dunlop, and put the reserve under Colonel Wellesley. When the hour arrived for the onset, Baird, giving the signal, led the stormers out of the trenches. In ten minutes the fierce columns, though struck by a sharp fire, had forded the river, ascended the breach, and planted the British flag on the ruins. Then Sherbrooke cleared the walls to the south and Dunlop's troops, for Dunlop fell in the trench, swept the northern side and in two hours the place was won not without encountering the grim resistance of fanaticism and despair fortipu surprised by the sudden onset and uproar mounted his horse and flung himself in the path of dunlop's column heading his host with commanding bravery and dying in the midst of five hundred men whose bodies were piled up above and around his corpse wellesley entered the fortress immediately after the assault says colonel gurwood and was one of the few present when Tipu sultan's body which was still warm was discovered in the sally port gateway on the northern front of the works the sons of Tipu surrendered to general baird who the next morning was succeeded in the command of sringapatam by colonel wellesley no reason for the change has been given Major General Baird having desired to be relieved, Colonel Wellesley being next on the roster was ordered on the same night, the fourth, to command within the fort. Such is Gurwood's brief but explicit statement. On the other hand, Baird simply says in his official report that he was relieved by Colonel Wellesley, and he certainly remonstrated in terms so intemperate that he requested and obtained permission to withdraw them. Whatever the reason, it cannot in the least affect the character of Wellesley, who as usual obeyed orders. General Harris did not consult Lord Mornington, but he divined his wishes and learned two months afterwards that had he not appointed the colonel to the post, the governor-general would have done so, because the knowledge and experience which he had of his character showed that his brother possessed the necessary qualifications for such employment. Nor was the step taken too soon that the troops should plunder was inevitable. They had come to push of bayonet with Tipu's people and had stormed his capital, but the disorder had to be stopped for the sake of the army as well as the place. Nothing, wrote Wellesley, can have exceeded what was done on the night of the fourth. Scarcely a house was left unplundered. He called at once for fresh troops. He asked for a provost-marshal, saying that until a few were hanged the marauding would not cease. Some were hanged, and some, of course, flogged, and by dint of just action he was able to report two days later that the plunder was stopped, the fires extinguished, and that the inhabitants who had fled were returning. In short, by vigour and justice he restored confidence among a people who were quick to recognize the strong just man whom they can respect as well as fear. During the next three months the governor of Seringapatam, was engaged in the numberless occupations which beset a man of business. He was obliged to be a soldier, engineer, statesman, traffic manager, and even sanitary authority. It was his duty to restore discipline, shaken a little not only by the plunder of the town, but by the enormous amount of the prize money, over a million sterling, which for a moment it was feared would not be distributed according to the general's promise. Then he had to bury Tipu, which was done with due pomp and circumstance, and to see that proper respect was shown to his family. But the government had determined to restore the old Hindu dynasty, dispossessed by Haider, the representative of which was at that time following the trade of a potter. The sons and wives of Tipu duly pensioned were sent to Valor. The Hindu gentleman, to his delight and astonishment, was placed on the Musnad, And Mysoru town was fixed on as his seat of government. Wellesley's strong opinions on the question of prize were creditable to his sense of decency as well as equity. He was disgusted with an order to search the Zenana for treasure, and only obeyed when he could not avert that grasping action, taking every precaution to render the search as decent and as little injurious to the feelings of the ladies as possible. The prize agents proposed to sell the clothes of Tipu by public auction, which would not only be disgraceful, but might be unpleasant. He stopped them, and recommended that the raiment should be bought by the government or given to the princes. You may conceive, he writes to his brother, what sharks they are. This day, August 19th, I have been obliged to send an order to prevent them from selling the doors in the palace. Indeed, he had no little difficulty in keeping private property out of their maws. He took his own share, which was his due, but Lord Mornington refused to accept the hundred thousand pounds derived from the sale of ordnance and stores, which Mr. Pitt and the company offered to him. Here it may be noted that Wellesley's first thought was to repay, out of his prize money, the sum advanced by his brother to purchase his rank of lieutenant-colonel. The answer was... No consideration can induce me to accept payment of the sums which I have formerly advanced for you. So strong and genuine was the friendship of these great men. At the same time, the colonel was serving the public at a loss. His allowances did not cover the expenses entailed by his situation. I was sent here, he writes, with a garrison consisting of about half the army and a large staff and I have not received one shilling more than I did at Fort St. George. The consequence is that I am ruined. Yet he did his daily tale of duty just as thoroughly as if the general had taken the trouble to remove the scandal. He says that since the preceding December he had in some months spent five times, in others four times more than he received, and that he signed papers authorizing officers under his command and living upon him, by the custom of the service, to obtain nearly half as much more than was by regulation due to him. No wonder he wrote to his brothers, saying that he would not have referred to the subject had there been any probability that General Harris would represent his case before the Governor-General left Madras. The reason of his suffering was not only that he had been neglected by the General, but that he would not do the dirty things done elsewhere, that is, pocket what did not rightly belong to him. As early as May 8th, he put his sentiments on the company's administration in plain terms. I intend to ask to be brought away with the army if any civil servant of the company is to be here with civil authority who is not under my orders, for I know that the whole is a system of job and corruption from beginning to end, of which I and my troops would be made the instruments never could he bear with meanness corruption or disorder all kinds of work came before him and tested his administrative capacity he shirked none and was equal to all from the drawing up of a regulation for the administration of justice within his domain to the duties of a commissariat clerk which he performed for a month none having been sent him in settling the future of the conquered province and its division among the victors his opinion, of course, was sought. But what it is most interesting to note is that the system he favoured was based on an estimate of what would be safe, creditable, and not likely to lead us into new wars. So that from the outset, the great captain who said that nothing was more horrible than a victory except a defeat, had no love for war. He accepted it as a duty and a necessity, He waged it with all the vigor and skill he could command, but he would always have avoided war, if avoidance would be compatible with imperial safety and imperial honor. By the middle of August, General Harris, who had been employed in reducing hill forts, delivered Tipu's country from marauding bands, and restoring tranquillity so far as that could be done, retired to Madras, and the post he quitted fell to Colonel Wellesley, whose appointment to the command of the troops in Mysore is dated August 24, 1799. His new field of action was extensive and his duties onerous. The half-robber chiefs in the western hills were and long remained unsubdued. The Marathas on the north could not give up their love of a foray. The former troopers of Tipu, who had taken to the jungle, disturbed the country. There were large tracts, like wayanad to reduce, and vassal rulers to protect. The normal state of the districts between mysore and the sea was one of war, and it was the business as well as the duty of the company to repress violence and establish tranquillity. Wellesley did all he could to overcome the disturbers. He kept a sharp eye on all their doings. He stimulated the energy of his subordinates, enjoined severe but just measures, seeing clearly that men who relied on, believed in and lived by force would yield to no other remedy, and he visited nearly the whole of the area under his control. So far as the settlement of the country was concerned, he favored the dismantling of the rock fortresses and the making of roads, so that the cultivators might be freed from the marauders and the traders protected from highwaymen. His great capacity for work enabled him to perform his varied public duties thoroughly and yet omit none of the social and humanizing kind. It is pleasant to find him on his return from the camp to Seringapatam, sending a proper assortment of garden seeds to a lady and looking after the building of an abode for Colonel Close. As the boundary walls are not handsome, he writes, I will cover those which must be near your house with a creeper. I have sent you some plantain-trees, and shall have others for you when the season for cutting arrives. When Lady Clive proposed to visit Mysore, he suggested that she should not come before June, as April and May are very hot here, and he hoped she would stay at his quarters the Dalat Bang, the Zenana of which, when a little improved, will accommodate her and her family admirably. Neither of the palaces, he adds, would answer for a woman at all, as they are so much exposed. These examples of thoughtfulness, and there are many, show the man as he was, and he looked after the interests and comforts of the poor and weak quite as carefully as those of the rich and strong, being a stern hard man to evil doers, yet always merciful, charitable, and kind. Other and more stirring employment lay before him, Throughout the autumn of 1799 and the following spring, we hear repeatedly of a certain Don de Awag who had taken to the road. He was a Maratha who began life in Hyder's cavalry, grew wearied of service under Tipu, and began business on his own account, perhaps inspired by the success of the former. The Tiger managed to have him captured and kept him in jail, made him a Moslem against his will, and gave him a new name after the storming of Seringapatam, let loose from prison by the victors, he became at once a freebooter and easily found followers. His first essays were sharply repressed by the British and the border Marathas, but being alert and deft as well as valiant, he vanished in the jungles. He reappeared shortly afterwards in the service of the Raja of Kolapur, himself a plunderer of the First Order, and fighting for the Kolapur men he killed Purishram Baw, a famous mahratta of those days. Then he returned to the wild country about Savanor and Wellesley at Seringapatam, heard of a plot devised by Dandia to carry off the young princes who were here at the time when they should be hunting with me. The colonel, who put no trust in the report, duly looked into it, but he did not stop his hunting, though he kept the princes at home. In the spring he journeyed to the coast of Malabar and was haunted all the way by reports of Dandia, upon whom he kept an eye, while studying the Nairs and Moplas and encouraging the Raja of Kurg, whom he judged to be more sincere than any native he had yet seen. Soon he heard that the free lance had gained ground in the Savanour country, and when the colonel reached Seringapatam in the middle of April the disturber had become a serious personage the aspect of affairs in may was not bright i think that upon the whole he says to monroe we are not in the most thriving condition in this country polygars nares and moplas, in arms on all sides of us an army dandias full of disaffection and discontent amounting to lord knows what on the northern frontier which increases as it advances like a snowball in snow by this time, the adventurer had taken Dummel, a fort in the jungle country, beyond the Wirda, and had actually defeated a body of mahrattas headed by Sahib, who hoped to avenge the death of his father, Purish Rambau. His army, recruited from many places, was numbered by thousands, and he was meddling in Malabar. The spectral, shadowy, flitting figure had become substantial, a despicable enemy in the colonel's eyes yet one so full of danger that he had to be destroyed. Out of Dandia's in India came the founders of states. In any case, while he was afoot, there could be no peace. The government of Madras were aroused at the end of May, and Mr. Secretary Webb wrote to Wellesley, You are to pursue Wag, wherever you may find him, and to hang him on the first tree for this purpose you will receive immediate authority to enter the mahratta frontier that brought on the campaign which occupied all the hot weather wellesley was promptly in the field joining his army at hurihur on the tumbudra about june fifteenth he was none too soon for the southwest monsoon had broken pouring its mighty rains upon the western goats hence from the hills beyond puna to the forests of Canara, rolled the floods which filled all the great affluence of the Kistna. Over this immense tract they ran from the westward easterly, and thus crossed Wellesley's intended line of march. For Dandia had set up his tents in the jungles at the confluence of the Tumbudra with the Kistna, and especially between the Verda and the Malpurba, where at Dommel and Savanor he fronted the coming host he was aided by the polygars or independent chiefs and partially vexed by the mahrattas notably dundo punt gokla practically he had carved his dominions out of mahratta territory but he had the audacity to demand villages and lands from the nizam and mizoru offering in exchange the services of twenty-five thousand horsemen before wellesley hindered by the waters could cross them don had swept down upon and killed Gokla in action the second mahratta chief who fell under his sword but as soon as the army were over first the tumbudra and next the Werda, the freebooter was compelled to rely more on his shiftiness and less on his valour so great were the obstacles that Savanor was not occupied until july twelfth by which time, however, Wellesley had cleared away everything hostile upon his flanks and rear. The enemy moved up as if intending to fight, but fled northward rapidly when he found his foes were coming at him, leaving his fort at Dummel to be taken by storm on the 26th, and all the posts and villages near captured. Gokla's maradas under his son now joined the colonel, eager to be avenged upon but still greatly afraid of Dondia. Wellesley, marching toward Manolo on the Malpurba, surprised the enemy's camp, charging into it with his cavalry, all the troops he had with him, and routing the defenders. All the baggage, two elephants, many camels, horses and bullocks were captured. Dundee's six cannon had been passed over the river, but two officers and some men, seeing a boat under the fort on the other side, swam over, seized, and brought away the guns. The stroke should have been fatal, but a dexterous Maratha adventurer is not easily caught. For more than a month he led the English a weary chase through dense jungles and over swollen streams, nor was it till September 10th that Wellesley was able to try conclusions with him again. On the previous evening, being then at Yelpu Purvi with four regiments of cavalry, his infantry, being a march behind, he learned that the mahratta was in camp about nine miles distant. The night was so bad and the horses and men so wearied with the day's march that he halted until dawn. After an anxious night he moved out in the morning. Dundee had also started and to his amazement saw his dreaded adversary athwart his path. Some five thousand strong, his forces took up a strong position resting on the rock and village of Coonegal, where they stood with apparent firmness. Then Wellesley, forming his four regiments into one line and leading the way, dashed into the enemy's ranks. The action was brief, for the headlong charge of men, angered by so much marching, could not be withstood. Dundee was killed, and his death ended the warfare he had called down upon himself. In his camp his little son was found and rescued by the colonel, who took him in his charge and when he quitted India, left some hundreds of pounds to be expended on the boy, of whom he was often mindful in after years. He lived until 1822, when he died of cholera. Dandia's career was short, but it was typical. Had he not been resolutely tackled, he might have founded a robber state and imitated his exemplars, the sultans of Mysore. The campaign against the Maratha trooper, none the less, because the enemy was despicable, revealed the qualities possessed by the young commander. Decision and boldness tempered by prudence. It also brought out afresh those aptitudes for administration which make so faint a show on the pages of history, because the details are dull, yet constitute a large as well as an essential element in success, and even mitigate the effects of failure. And while intent on catching and crushing Dandia, the colonel did not fail to keep an eye upon the whole of his command or neglect to watch closely the politics of the deccan when the little war was over he still remained a few months in the field attending to business of all kinds growing out of the settlement of the extensive tracts which it was necessary to rescue from plundering chieftains and to render familiar with the advantages of tranquillity he did not return to Seringapatam. Until the end of November, and on December 2nd, he was ordered by the Governor General, now Marquis Wellesley, to assume the command of certain forces about to be assembled at Trincomalee in Ceylon. And he at once started for that port, leaving Colonel Stevenson with admirable instructions to direct operations in Wayanad and against the Polygars in the recently acquired territories the government were moved to this step by the successes of the French in Europe and Egypt, and they designed to attack the Mauritius or send an expedition to the Red Sea. Colonel Wellesley labored with his wonted ardor to prepare the troops, and judging that Bombay would be the best base, he, on his own responsibility, transferred the small army to that harbor. It was a bold step, but it saved the expedition from failure. The colonel had not sought and did not like a position which took him from Mysoreau, but he liked still less to be deposed and placed under the orders of General Baird, who was suddenly appointed to command. And he was hurt by the public announcement, as he put it, that he was considered competent to prepare but not to lead the troops. The truth is that the governor-general, not without a little external pressure, found that he was obliged by the rules of the service to employ a major-general and consequently that he must disappoint arthur who however felt aggrieved because he thought that something like a slur was put on him his brother wished him to act as second in command a post most distasteful to him when baird was chief but he would have submitted and had made up his mind to the sacrifice of inclination to duty when fortunately the malaria from the Bombay swamps gave him a serious fever. He therefore remained behind, and permission to resume his post in Mysore soon came. It is proper to state that the colonel cherished no rancor against Baird, whose kind, candid, and handsome manner to him he went out of his way to acknowledge. But he seems to have dreaded needlessly that the supersession would be interpreted as evidence of incapacity. He was also much distressed on account of the officers who had quitted Mysore to serve on his staff, and who were naturally anxious about their future when transferred to other duties. He himself lost nothing, for though the expedition made an interesting march from Kosir to the Nile, it was too late for active operations, as Menu in Cairo had surrendered to Hutchinson. Yet the report that an Indian column was approaching from the Red Sea had some influence on the french commander colonel wellesley still suffering a little from the fever travelled by way of cannonor and the western goats to Seringapatam, which place he entered on may seventh writing to his brother henry he laughingly says i found your friend mrs stevenson who had been with difficulty restrained from turning the house out of doors and windows during the time i was absent but that, of course, did not prevent him, in true Anglo-Indian fashion, from expressing a polite hope that she and the colonel would make use of his house, so long as they might find it convenient. The government of Madras was glad to have him back, and seconded his efforts to render the city less unhealthy, his measures for the welfare of the troops, and the judicial steps he was obliged to take at Seringapatam for the purpose of hunting out and punishing corruption and malversation which would disgrace the nougat calendar. But the condition of mysore was gratifying. The Rajah's government, he wrote, is in the most prosperous state. The country has become a garden where it is inhabited, and the inhabitants are returning fast to those parts which the last savage, in a reverent allusion to Tipu, had forced them to quit. He still harped, however, on the old string, supersession, which he had done nothing to deserve, and had some thoughts of going home should he see no prospect of active service. Against this Henry Wellesley pleaded strongly, pointing out that as a general peace was evidently near at hand, India was the only place in which he was likely to be employed. Although you care less about money than any man I ever yet met with, a remark worth remembering, still even in respect of cash, India, this hateful country, was better than anywhere else. So, of course, he stayed, perhaps never had more than a passing wish for home, and thus remained to do more solid work and gather more laurels. For nearly two years he was stationary at Sringapattam, actively engaged in various tasks, ruling with diligence, protecting the natives, assiduous in his care for sanitation, bringing the troops up to a high state of discipline, watching intently the movements in native politics, and always eager for intelligence from europe where the greater world drama was performed he became a major general in april 1802 but the official announcement of that event did not reach him until the autumn his brother the governor-general ran imminent risk of recall yet finally held his post the peace of amiens quieted down for the time the turbulency of european politics and the report of its conclusion roused no enthusiasm in india i agree with you entirely about the peace he wrote to mr webb it establishes the french power over europe and when we shall have disarmed we shall have no security except in our own abjectness a strong expression which events did not justify yet not unnatural to a soldier looking upon affairs from a point so far removed from the centre of politics The peace was a truce, but the security was in the sturdy spirit and not in the abjectness of our heroic and tenacious forefathers. India, however, was strictly under its own necessities and almost independent of the peace. Nevertheless, closely gauging the pressure of English opinion upon the Eastern politics, Colonel Wellesley thought there would be an outcry for the reduction of Indian armaments perhaps to the prejudice of Indian interests, which really stood apart from those of the Western world far more in 1803 than they do now. But events occurred in the Maratha Empire, which set aside all idea of reduction and, indeed, brought armies alike in the Deccan and Hindustan once more into the field. To render the new campaign and the conduct of its leaders intelligible, a brief political sketch is necessary. End of Section 3